You're listening to Live Wild Radio, the part-time adventure podcast. Join us as we explore how outdoor adventures build mind, body, and spirit. Welcome back to Live Wild Radio, everybody. Uh, sometimes you, you run into the thing where uh, you'll travel around to record, uh, and now we're in a converted church that is kind of like a, a rock climbing Mecca home base kind of thing. Oh, yeah, and if you want to see the best home climbing gym, you know, on the interior of, a, uh, of an old church... Just come to one axe pursuit. Although I don't think I think that's for VIPs only, yeah. right? It, it is, yeah. The, the, the awesome climbing wall is inside the house in the living room, so you don't get to see it from the business side, but yeah. it is pretty awesome. So literally, yeah. your kids could be climbing the walls. Or they literally are climbing the walls. Yeah. yeah. So here we are with uh, Frederick um, Schuett, who's the owner of One Axe Pursuit, uh, and it sort of fits in with you know a lot of what we talk about. You know, um, people living an adventurous life. You're a rock climbing guide, like a rigger in the movies and TV. You've, you know, set up zip lines over volcanoes. Yeah. You you do corporate building. You're probably a mountain guide. Yeah, did uh, mountain guide and yeah. Caving. Uh, caving, ice and climbing. Ice yeah. climbing. You know, so like adventure next level. Yeah. Anything to do with yeah, ropes and adventure. I've done it at some point or do it <laughs> now. <laughs> yeah, because it, it, it's a thing. Like Fred's based in Laura and one of the things that always caught my attention, uh, like with your Instagram posts or, or on Facebook, was in the wintertime, how you guys will run a hose down the side of the gorge and make your own ice climbing walls. Yes. Um, which I just thought was one of the coolest things. Yes. And it was by necessity, really, because the, the climate change, or the, we've been running ice climb for 20 years, and the last 10 years, it's been really hard to get good ice to climb on. So the last seven years... This will be the eighth year I started building my own to have reliable ice. And we'd still get on the natural ice, but it, it you know, before like Christmas, you could ice climb in. Mm-hmm. Now it's the natural ice doesn't come into like maybe for lucky beginning of February. In What's the height of that? Uh, the it's ice about waterfall. 60 feet. It's nice. about 60 foot ice climb. And we have uh, four main routes, but there's variation between the four okay. ropes. So yeah. we'll have four ropes up. Build some wooden structures as well, and I'm actually able to control how hard I make the climbs too. Starts with a two, and it goes into a three, and and uh, finishes with a three plus. So it's kind of fun. It gets a little harder as you go, but there's yeah. pl- levels where you can kind of take a break, which is kind of like a three. Um, and then I have some vertical ice on the front that's like a four, like WI four. And on the right side, again, it may start with a four, but then it turns into a three, and then it goes back to a four, like in the sense of vertical. If you rated them all top to bottom, we're probably grade. Three you know, two plus two, four. Um, and then there's the natural ice pillar that forms, which is like a four plus. Cool. Yeah. So let's go back a bit. Um, how did you get into what you're doing today? Because you're clearly, like I said, this is totally next level. This is not just guiding. You're doing, it's like if people want to go find their inner youth and do some adventure, you can, they can take off, you know, after some practice yeah. and instruction and all that. Yeah. It's really different because you do caving, you do, you know, uh, mountaineering, you do the ice climbing, rock climbing. Um, but you, you've been on some pretty cool expeditions. When I was younger, I just loved, like most people, ex- like a lot of people like outdoors, exploring outside. And I liked going where there's cliffs because there was something exciting about the cliffs. And yeah. the views were cooler when you were on a cliff than just stick in the middle of the woods. 
you could have big vistas and I liked scrambling like most kids do. You find a cliff and you're like, I think I can climb that and you try it and you might be like, okay, that was a bad idea and back off. Um, so I kind of started like that. I'm like the boy scout, right? So ever since I was a child, I just imagined like, what if I got lost right now? Or what if this plane crashed? It was just hilarious. Yeah. It was just like an ongoing thing, right? And it's like, it never happened yet. But I'm like, oh my God. but if it does, I'm going to be ready. I did get stranded on the side of a mountain once with a client. Oh, really? And had to spend the night without the proper equipment to go below zero. So what night. mountain? So this was El Pico de Orizaba in Mexico. It's North America's third highest peak. It's around 18,666 feet or something. How high so were it's you? over 5,000 meters. Okay, and how high were you when you were stranded? Um, I think we were, we had summited and we were on our way down, but it got like an extreme whiteout. So we could see maybe six feet. Like it was really bad. And GPS was really low, like low tech at that point. It was, oh, well, I had a GPS, but it was, they're really gimmicky. It just had like an arrow and a dot telling you which way to go. Like, and uh, you have to check, put checkpoints in as you go and follow your route, um, which we needed because it's just a big cone near the top of Orzab. It's just a big volcano. So it just has a, it's just not a lot of landmarks on the mountain. There's no ridges to follow. It's just a big cone um, on the top part and on the way down. Somehow on the way up, I think I had it on my shoulder strap and my backpack, but when I was leaning into the mountain as we climbed, I don't think it got enough satellite coverage. It, was look, it couldn't go through me, and it couldn't go through the mountain, so it only had a small window, I guess. Oh. Later, I learned to put it on top of my backpack, um, and it cut out right on the, the cone, the part that we needed. So mm-hmm. like my GPS, I was like, oh, let's follow the GPS back. And, and I was like, like, oh, there's nothing. Oh, that's not helpful. <laughs> <laughs> that's not going to work at all. Like it's all, it lost like half the top of the climb, which is where we are. Okay. And then compass, I have the compass and a, and a, and a map, which is somewhat useful, but the mountain's too steep to just walk in a straight line down the mountain. I can't just point it in the direction I want to go and walk because it's too steep. I got to switch back, which means I'm going to be all over the place. Like I'm not going to find this one gully called the labyrinth that you got to get into to get back to camp. So it's a 4,000 foot climb down back to camp so i'm like the small the small area i gotta get to on a big mountain that's just all covered in snow a 45 degree angle and the compass gets me on the right side of the mountain but it's like it's definitely not precise enough to find that point so we started just heading down and I'm like well let's <laughs> we gotta go down right so let's start heading down and we had a guy at base camp which is a hut and he has a scope and he watches us and mm-hmm. he kind of gets water ready for us and and then he knows we never came back that night. So he started freaking out because people die on that mountain quite a bit because that happens and people can't find their way down or they find their way down, but they can't find their way right back to camp right? until the next day. And, they might and if fall they don't survive the night happens. or yeah, they fall off. But anyway, so we came, I was like, I'm going to follow, just going to head down. I'll try and follow the gentle terrain, which with no visibility, it was very hard, obviously. Oh and I found some guys, someone had placed some wands. So I found a wand and the, the visibility lifted to maybe 20 feet at some points. And I was like, well, there's a wand here. All right, well, let's follow the wand. It's probably, hopefully they placed the wands on the standard route, which is the route we did. But lo and behold, of course, they placed the wands because they weren't doing the standard route. So it took us down the other side of the mountain. Not the other side of the mountain, but the other side of this big um, spire called sarcophago. And we want to go down the right side and we went down the left side. And I could tell right away, I was like, wait a minute. The train is sloped on the wrong angle. I can tell sarcophago was on the right, and we want it on the left. So I was like, okay, no big deal. And the, the, the ice started 
the snow did these big pilientes, like the icicles started coming out of the ground. And I was like, well, this is obviously a different part of the mountain because it's different ice formation on the glacier. So I was like, we got to go up and over. It's like, it's no big deal. Let's go up a thousand feet and then down the other side. And then we should find the labyrinth and get her way, you know, wander her way down. But he was starting to feel sick. And uh, we had already been out for like 15 hours by this point. So he's tired and he's starting to feel sick. And then the, right when we were, I kind of noticed that the clouds lifted for a moment. And I, I did see a fire, but I was too busy trying to orientate my three, like my topo map to see where I was and get some bearings on some other points to see exactly where we were on the mountain. And he was just like, you know, enjoying the view. And uh, then it clouded over. It had like maybe a minute. It was very oh, wow. soon. It was just like panicking like, okay this way this way and then it clouded over again i'm like okay we're exactly where i thought we were from Good. what i could tell yeah. but he's like there's a fire down there i saw a fire and i did know i was like i did see a fire but i didn't pay attention to it and i was like there is guys the largest uh herding community in north america is on the side of that mountain so i was like well if we can get down to the the guys so if we can get down to wood we can have a fire right so and there's grass and i was like well that's insulation right i was like okay well he didn't really didn't want to go up. He was kind of giving me some trouble. So I was like, well, you know, I'm happy. And, you know, if we can't find a way down, we have to spend the night. This is like the dream come true, right? We got to do some survival stuff. This is great. So I had this big, <laughs> I was like really happy. Like, I was like, on. it's not my fault. Like He didn't want to go, right? This is great. <laughs> yeah. So we started going down and it gets dark. And I was trying to traverse the mountain and try and get over this next bridge. Is it still day one? It's still day one. Got so it. it's just a long day. We left at three in the morning. Yeah. And now it's like five at night and okay. it gets dark at six. So it's a long, long day. Mm. And, but he just got, he was, he was so tired. He was, I had made him put his climbing helmet back on, even though we weren't in any major danger, but he was, looked like he was going to fall over any minute and he just had no energy. So I was like, shoot, we can't get to where, we can't get to those farmers that are the, the goat And herders. you're still in the snow. Uh, we're out of snow. We're just in rock now. Okay. But I was like, this is like the worst part to stop. It's just rocks and it's going to go below zero. It's going to probably go down to possibly minus 10, you know, or at, at least, least below snow, zero. And yeah, we're not in snow. We're in rocks. We're not, we didn't get yeah. to the grass yet. I'm like, okay, let's just keep going until we get, and we get, did get to some like tufts of grass. So we spent, I say, this is great. Okay. So then we started, I kind of found a little ditch in the, this, you know, just the ridge and we collected grass and we filled it with grass and you know, I'm Mr. Survival Golf. So inside my climbing helmet, I had the thermal blanket in there and I had my first aid kit and I had some um, kind of like, not the hot packets, but I usually would carry, um, it's kind of like for your, if you have a sore back, mm -hmm. it's like a, it's like a chemical reaction that creates heat and yep. it's a big sticker and you can stick it on your body. I know those. Yeah. So sometimes I'll carry a couple of those and if someone's really cold, I'll slap one on their back and slap one on their stomach. So it's like heats the core. So I had one of those. So I'm like, okay, I can slap that on him when he first goes to sleep, give him mm -hmm. some warmth. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, and then I got him to collect all the grass and do lots of work. So I knew he'd get warm. And then, yeah, we laid in the ditch side by side. And I took his mitts, I took his boots off because boots are not very warm. Mm -hmm. I took his boots off and I put his big mitts on his feet. Mm -hmm. And I put his feet in a garbage bag, again, for survival, I always carry like a little bivy sack so it's yeah. nice carry garbage bag yeah. filled it with grass made yeah. a little half sleeping bag for him and then i told him to put his arms inside his coat and put them across his chest so they're right at kind of like just with his like base layer mm -hmm. and then i tied his 
arms across his chest or fold so they had more insulation mm -hmm. and put a bala or put his balaclava on and put his hood up mm -hmm. and hat on and you know so he was all like mummified he was like a baby right <laughs> yeah, but he was yeah, so yeah. exhausted he just yeah, like passed right yeah, out. it didn't yeah, matter yeah. if he looked uncomfortable yeah, yeah, yeah. it's not uncomfortable you just can't move around too right. much right and then i laid beside him and i threw some grass on me you know packed right. it around me did the same thing and I had the thermal blanket over the two of us uh -huh. with yes. some or trick or amazing, ice eh? axes kind of supported it enough that it nice. was not just like in a blow away and then yeah. yeah we went to sleep and it was not very eventful it was I, we did wake up about I don't know how many hours into it you know maybe four hours of sleep I woke up I was kind of getting chilly and I was like uh but bumping his arm like are you awake <laughs> are you, you cold you getting cold he's like <laughs> Yeah, I'm getting starting to get cold. I'm like, okay, we got to get up. You know, we can't get cold. We got to mm. get up before we get cold. So I made him get up and undid all his get up. And then we need more grass. So really, it didn't, it just needed to get him warm, really. Yeah, and I needed to get warm. So I was doing some squats. And when I was, let's get more grass. You can't hurt putting more grass down, more insulation from the cold rocks. Mm -hmm. And then, when, yeah, I did that again. I went, went back to sleep again, the same kind of mummified scenario. And then we woke up the next day and it was it was good to go. And we had to rush back. And within, this is Mexico. So as we went down within two hours, we're like dying of heat exhaustion. It was hilarious. So it went, it snowed on us that night. It was like cold. But then, um, then within a few hours, we're like in the sand, our coats are all over our backs and we're worrying about getting oh sunburned and we're yeah. sweating and we have no water. Yeah. We're like, oh. oh man, this is like one extreme to the next. First, we're going to freeze to death on a mountain. Now it That's feels like we're going to die in a desert, right? It was hilarious. Yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, we made it back and it was, you know, I had a big smile on my whole face because I thought this is like, this is great, <laughs> right? I was like, we should add this to the trip. Like, we should just <laughs> make everyone do this. It's so fun, <laughs> right? Yeah. You know, you could tell them a little bit in advance, hey, we're going to spend it's the like night outside, fun. right? <laughs> so is there anything that you are you afraid of? Does anything that scare you? Oh, for sure. Yeah. I'm all, I'm always like, I think about stuff all the time. And st like when I'm out with clients, I'm constantly thinking like, you know, what if they do this? What if they do that? Or what if this happens? Or what if that happened? So I'm just <laughs> constantly thinking about it, trying to eliminate risks. Yeah. Um, but I think that's good. And that's what keeps our program so safe in the, in the end. Like I've done that mountain so many times and other mountains with clients. I've never had any incidents of anything because I'm always like well what if you know yeah and beforehand too I'm always like well what if the GPS doesn't work well I got the compass I got the map well what if that doesn't work okay well I got a few survival stuff we can spend the night if we yeah, need yeah. to and I have the skills we could build a snow cave and we could dig into the mountain or just build a Quincy if we're out where you know if there's snow snow or I can build an igloo there's all these like I have all the skills right so it's like there's always the backup plan right yeah anyway I, I do like that and I like it's anything with outdoor adventure I like Water stuff scares me the most Does because it? it's more, it's more unpredictable and I can't, I can't, you can't always go against a rapid to get to somebody without risking your own butt sometimes. Yeah. Water's, water's way more unpredictable in my mind than any of the rock and ice and mountains and stuff and bulk, even the volcanoes and stuff. They're more predictable than my mind. <laughs> well, and speaking of volcanoes, let, let's get onto that because Basically, you've got like a, a bunch of um, like firsts and records yeah, uh, yeah. in volcano traverses. I was known in the industry through several different industries to be the guy to set up rope zip lines. And we, our zip lines we set up in Allure, even for the courses we do now, we rig them on the day, we run the program, then we take them down. 
Um, so we've been known for that in for doing stunts for commercials or TV shows to be able to set stuff up and take stuff down really quickly and very safely. I have the only rope zip lines that are TSSA approved, which by the Canadian, you know, the TSSA Technical Standard Safety Authority, mm-hmm. and I'm now a mechanic for them as well. And then when George Karunas, he's a Canadian, he lives in downtown Toronto, and he used to be the host of Angry Planet. Oh, really, yeah. Really cool TV show where he travels the globe going to really scary and cool places, yeah. like places that, that anyone that listens to your podcast should want to go to. <laughs> and like, I'm jealous of the places he goes. I'm like, man, like, how can I get to go there? So he's really known in that industry and he's on the Weather Network a lot. He's a storm chaser. Um, that's how he was known. And then he got this role as the host for the TV show. So um, George contacted me. He had done some of the zip lines or seen some of the zip lines I've done. And he mm-hmm. knew some of my clients. And so he contacted me and said, originally he was, he wanted to know if I could teach him how to set up a rope zip line over this pit of fire in Turkmenistan. Oh my God. Because he was trying to get a production company to pay for him to go and do this, but um, no one would pay for it. Too expensive for just a zip line over this pit of fire. Because it's like, well, where's the story? Like, what are you doing there? You How just, much would that have costed? Like, what's a budget to do something like that? Uh, a few hundred thousand for the okay. for the thing. But then for the production company, they could want tons more for all the editing and all the sure. all the behind the scenes and paying their people to go and stuff like that. We could be, you know, yeah. you, the start, the sky's the limit. How much do you want to spend? How what kind of cameras do you want to bring with you? You know, and yeah, yeah. and you have to get government approval when you start filming like big production stuff. So it could, you know, you could be up getting close to a million dollars, right? Um, again, there's ways to do it cheaper, but you know, depending on how many cameras you want and what quality you want, it could just keep climbing the the dollar amount. And then the gear alone is expensive because most of the gear is uh, not standard it has to be heat and fire resistant like okay. customized harnesses so you're getting people to build different things for you or you know companies to make you special ropes and stuff like that um so george contacted me and then he showed me this pit of fire he sent me a link to a youtube video and back then this was 2012 or 2011 there wasn't a lot online of this pit of fire there was just videos of some tourists in the desert filming it and they'd post it on YouTube. And they'd, we're here in this fire in the desert. And there's like, okay, well, that was it. You could see it on Google Earth, but you had no dimensions. You have no idea how deep it is, how wide it is. You know it's been burning for about 40 years because mm-hmm. there's the story of the geologists that lit it on fire because it started leaking. They were drilling for natural gas and it collapsed. Their air pocket was much higher than they expected. Oh, okay. It collapsed. Natural gas was leaking out in methane, so that's really bad for the ozone. They knew that back in the you know 60s or 70s when that happened, and they decided we're going to burn it because burning it is safer for the environment than letting it just leak this gas out. Um, so they burned it, and they thought, oh, it'll burn for three or four years, and then the, the fire will go out. But it, it's been burning now for almost 50 years. It's getting close to 50 years now. Oh, wow. And so anyway, George heard about this, and since... He didn't get to put it in his TV show, so he was trying to film it on his own and then sell it to a TV production company or sell it as a documentary or something. And so when I, I saw it, I was like, hey, George, you're, this is great. And I could teach you how to, to rig it and how to use sand as your anchors and stuff like that. But if I go on the trip <laughs> <laughs> and I, I have a lot more rope experience that I wouldn't be able to teach you in the amount of time that you need to go do this, I can set this system up that you can zip line out 
and then we can traverse traverse that across it anywhere you want. You just tell me where you want to go. I'll set the zipline up. You can traverse out. So we keep calling it a zipline, but it's really just a tension rope system. So it's more mm-hmm. horizontal, like a Tyrolean traverse kind of idea. Mm-hmm. But um, so I can set this thing up for you, and then you can zip across or get traverse across on your pulleys, and then get lowered down into the bottom and walk around amongst the flames and stuff. And I saw George had one of these silver suits because he'd been in volcanoes before in Hawaii for his TV show. So I'm like, I saw you got the silver suit, right? You got the, the, the suit for working with molten metal. So you could wear that and we can get you. I have connections with guys that train firefighters and stuff like that through rope rigging. So I can get you the SABA unit and we can train you on how to use it so you can wear that. So if you go down into the pit of fire, you don't die from poisonous gases or lock mm-hmm. up at lack of oxygen or anything like that and even if you did pass out the rope system would be designed in a way that i could haul you up and pull you across without anyone going in to the pit it's like so it's very safe in the sense that you're the only one in danger here yeah, yeah everyone yeah. else is just like rooting <laughs> you on you know you could we'll die bring your we'll, body back you know yeah we'll have a body bag up top <laughs> and some water to put you out you just you're like you're the test subject but no one else is going to get be you need to go in danger right and then when he heard that, his eyes, I was on the phone with him and he was just like, are you serious? Like you can do this? And he couldn't understand how it would work. So he's like, what are you doing tomorrow? Like I'm driving over. I want to see the system. So I, sh- I set it up. Luckily I have the church. So I have lots of space. So I set up between some beams and I had a weight bag and I kind of showed him how the pulley system works and where I would operate, what he would do and where my other rigger would be. And he was like, this is awesome. Like, this is like, he's like, this changes everything. He's like, I'm going to go back to the production companies now and pitch this to them. And then once he did that, like everybody wanted, like Discovery Channel wanted it. Even the History Channel wanted it. Like every, awesome. anyone that heard about it was like, we want that. We want that on our show. We want that on our uh, TV channel. You must and, have been so uh, excited. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I don't know the, I never, George just told me little bits. So I'm sure. So he was making all the calls and he had the connections and Nat, National Geographic heard about it and they wanted it. So I didn't, I don't think I heard about it until he had heard it from back from everybody because it was only a few days and he called me back and said, wait, everyone wants it. So we're going to go with Discovery Channel or Nat Geo. And I was like, well, I think Nat Geo <laughs> <laughs> just because they have the reputation. Right. And yeah. it's just, you know, to be on a National Geographic documentary, this, that's extra cool. Right. I've already yeah. done stuff with Discovery Channel multiple times for TV shows and stuff like that. So I'm like, I've never done National Geographic. So yeah, we went with them, right? And uh, they had a, a TV series called Die Trying, and they wanted to add this to their TV show, and they would just be like their flagship show, you know, mm-hmm. one. Because they, they were kind of, search- they had a few ideas of some other stuff. They're like, you know, we don't have anything like that one that's going to grip people. Yeah. And when they added, like, this is the one, like the guy in a silver suit going to pit of fire. Yeah. Like, that's the one that's going to get everyone watching Viewers, the yeah. series, right? Because yeah, yeah, they're going to yeah. be waiting for that one episode. So that's, uh, yeah, so that's how I got into it at st- to start it. Um, and Sterling uh, Rope, well, climbers will know that. They sponsor us all the ropes, all the Technoir ropes and stuff for that. And, how much of a um, descent was it? Into- um, in the end, I think it was about 150 feet down. Okay. And maybe about two to two to 300 feet across the pit. Okay. Um, we had a NASA biologist go with us because um, we wanted to do some science while we were there too. Nat Geo loves mixing science with adventure. So, you know, so we had, an, uh, they got us a NASA biologist to come around and we were looking for extremophiles. So like bacteria that lives in really extreme environments 
Um, and we found, he found three strains of bacteria that have not been cataloged anywhere else in the world. So, and they're like a methane Eden bacteria. So, um, it was pretty neat, you know, it, you know, the biologist did tell us if you go to any of these crazy places where no one's ever been, you're going to find stuff that no one's ever seen. Like, it's just because it's cut off from the rest of the world. So yeah. something's probably going to be living down there yeah. that no one's ever seen before. And a different one volcano might have some bacteria that lives there that doesn't live in another volcano. Very cool. So, but it was pretty neat. And so we did that TV show. And since that, I got in the Guinness Book World Records. Um, it was a big two-page spread in 2017. And the funny thing with that was George <laughs> didn't know it was in the book. <laughs> and I didn't know it was in the book. And my yeah. son, someone gave him a... 2017 Guinness Book World Records for Christmas. Yeah. An aunt or an uncle was under the tree. He opened it up and he's flipping through the book Christmas morning. And he's like, dad, you're in the book. You didn't tell me this. What the? Oh yeah. <laughs> and I was, I was like, what? I was like, some guy looks like me in the book. He's like, no, the pit of fire. And I was like, really? And I look at it and I was like, yeah, this two page spread dedicated to the George going in the pit of fire and there's a picture I doesn't have my name anywhere but there's a picture of George going out and I'm the guy in the red jacket you know lowering him across the pit of fire and then Peter is the another guy that was there and he's beside me uh, in the silver pants so it's like pretty cool and it's actually uh, reprinted in this 2020 Guinness Book World Records it's a smaller it's a one quarter page little thing now but it made it out again Um, so it was kind of neat and since then, my name got out there even more as, uh, again, my name's not anywhere. It's on the doc, though. My name's on the documentary when yeah. you watch it. So a lady from Brazil saw that, and she's kind of making a name for herself as a celebrity slash TV personality. And she does extreme stuff. She's done Everest twice now. And mm-hmm. she's, uh, wow. done, she's a doctor, helicopter pilot. She's like the female Bear Grylls kind of thing, yeah. right? Like she's the outdoorsy uh, adventure woman. And she's, most of her stuff's in Portuguese. So like people in North America don't know who she is. So she's yeah. trying to get her name out there more. What's her name? Uh, Karina Oliani. Okay. And I have talked to people that I know from, that I've met clients that are from Brazil. I'm like, hey, do you know? And they're like, oh yeah, I know her. Like she's a, kind of on TV quite a bit on different TV shows. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, so people start to recognize her face and stuff. Um, so she contacted me and she wanted to do a world first as well. And in the end, we were going to, we had a few ideas, but in the end, uh, things fell through. So we, I said, let's do volcano. I said, I think we can do some, vul- we could do something over lava and be the first ever instead of a, cause she wanted a woman's first. I'm like, right. and she's done Everest twice, but that doesn't really make her anything special within the world of climbing Everest. There's people, there's tons of people have done Everest yeah. twice. She's done it from two different sides, which is kind of unique. Oh really? You she know? did the non-technical? I mean, the Oh, non- she did the, from the Nepal and from China. So Sorry? she's gone up from both sides, from the China side wow. and from the Nepal side. So it was pretty neat. And, uh, and she, again, on TV shows, they get special permissions to do different things. So it was pretty neat. So she contacted me and wanted to do, and I said, let's do a volcano. And she wanted a lot. She wanted to do with heat. She kind of wanted the pit of fire, but that kind of fell through. She wanted to be the women's first. And I said, well, if we do a volcano, it's like a world's first. It's like that first person ever. It's not the first woman ever. And yeah, yeah. she liked that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we, we kind of... There was a lot of things where it almost didn't go. Um, we had, she had some financial setbacks where she lost a lot of money because she she bought flights and they got canceled. Anyway, the only thing happened, and then and then she was going to cancel it. And I kind of talked her out of it and said we can we can do it. And I said I can rig the whole zipline myself or the traverse myself. I don't 
like I had two other guys going to go with me, but I'm like, I don't need to have two other guys really in the end. I'm the one that does, I just tell them what to do anyway. Yeah. They're just like my assistants, right? Like I don't mm. need them. Like I'll be one building most of the stuff or checking what they do anyway. So I just need a bit more time. Mm-hmm. So I said, I can make it work. Um, so she agreed. Let's just, let's do it. Let's try it. And we already had sponsors. I got sponsors from, uh, carbon X and, uh, text tech. Um, out of the States and they make the fireproof fabrics and the metal, this fabric they use for those, the metal suits, the suits they use for working with molten metal and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And, um, they were, I talked to a firefighter. I know that he trains firefighters and, uh, he's a firefighter himself. And then I asked him about helmets, like what helmets. And he recommended this one that looks like an astronaut helmet. Because, of course, we want the suit to look cool, too, right? Like, yeah, I felt yeah, like yeah. the other suit didn't look... It was kind of cool because it's silver. But other than that, it's not very cool. It looks like it's from, like, the 1950s, like, space movie. Like, really bad. <laughs> like, before they went to the moon kind of stuff. Like, they thought about going to the moon, what they would look like. So I was like, we got to get the suit look a little cooler. And also, I wanted her expedition to look different than the one I did with George. Mm-hmm. Make her suit look different enough that it's recognizably not the same expedition. Mm-hmm. So yeah, he recommended this helmet. We talked to them. We got sponsorship. They, everyone was on board. Like you're going over lava on a volcano. Everyone was, and they had. I had the reputation of my bio of other things I've done in the stunt industry and in the pit of fire, and that held a lot of credibility. So people were like, "Okay, he's going to do it. It's going to happen, right?" Not like it's a maybe. It's going to happen. So it was yeah. great. So people jumped on board. We got rope sponsorships again for the Technor rope, super expensive. Um, And then, yeah, I got uh, a woman to build the suit. I designed the suit, knowing what I knew about the pit of fire and the the failings of the first suit and where the heat was seeping in and Mm -hmm. how the suit didn't fit right. And and I wanted to make a custom suit. Mm -hmm. The suit for Turkmenistan, I think it would fit someone from like probably six foot seven you know, that size and down, like it's just, so it's like a one size fits anybody and it's just yeah, going to yeah. be bulky. Right. Yeah. And even on the tall guy, it would be bulky. Like, and if it wasn't bulky, then you wouldn't be able to move because the suit has no stretch. So it has, I was like, we got to make it custom. Like I have a custom one built for me and I get custom one built for her and it needs stretch panels or pieces mm-hmm. that with overlapping fabric. So when you bend your elbows, it kind of works. I kind of thought of like a knight's armor. Like, how does the knight's armor, it's not flexible. How did they move? And we kind of look, you know, we kind of were looking at that a little bit and stuff like that. So we got to design, I designed the the heat suit and then I got uh, a local woman that does, uh, actually, she has a hat company called Noggins. She makes hats out of like reclaimed fabrics and stuff. So she's used to just doing weird stuff, I guess, on a sewing machine with weird fabrics. So I knew that she would be able, and she's done stuff with me before. She built rope bags for us and tree wraps for our business for One Axe. Got it. So I knew she would be good at it. And uh, and we got special fabric from, uh, built the, the lava, the first ever lava suit. Yeah, because lava, is it uh, the heat that you're getting off of it? Is it, high, is it hotter than the, the pit of fire? Uh, it was hotter because, well, fire is... Uh, the heat's different uh, from a fire than from lava. Lava is very radiant heat yeah. and fire. It's just, it's just different. I guess the heat from fire, you can blow it like the heat from a mm-hmm. fire. The wind can blow the fire, the heat in one direction and you don't feel it in the other direction. Interesting. Okay. Lava doesn't do that. Lava, it's you just, just feel the heat everywhere. Cause it radiates. It's a radiant heat. It okay. goes through. It's like the sun. You can't blow the sun. So it's kind of worse. It's more consistent. It's different. It's very consistent yeah. and it's hotter and we didn't know how 
hot it was going to be. And the more lava you have, just the, the mense of it, it just oh, yeah. gives off heat, right? So describe that, that scene. Like how deep were you going into it? The crater is inside a caldera. Um, but the crater, the main crater that we traversed across is about maybe, it was about, it's always changing actually. It changes year to year. So it was about a thousand feet across. Um, maybe, maybe not. Maybe it was around 800 feet across. Okay. I have notes somewhere. I can't forget. Oh, there's just too many volcanoes <laughs> that have been sizing <laughs> up. But anyway, it was pretty big. It's big. And it was about 300 feet deep. Okay. To the lava. And the lava wasn't, uh, it wasn't a huh. complete bottom of lava like at the bottom is like um, very unstable terrain um it had some kind of like it looks like little mountains coming out of it that are cracked open like little volcanoes that shoot flames out almost it's, oh wow it's not flames it's not fire but the heat is so hot you can visually see like the air turns red and it sounds like an engine you'll hear it like roaring and making these weird sounds it's kind of it's actually pretty scary <laughs> Like Hell the sounds, is, yeah, it's like this howling sound. It's like, and yeah. then it'll go down and then it'll shoot up again. Yeah. Yeah. So there's two of those in there. And then at the back, there's this like, it looked like a happy face from the drone. Like two of these little volcanoes on shooting out red heat. And then like a happy face along the side of the, the That's circle. That's just the devil the welcoming you. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, and that lava there would change directions. And sometimes it would like hit the wall where it went underneath. Um, the ground and it would just, like throw lava in the air. Oh wow! So it's pretty flowy. It, yeah, it moves and then it change would change direction every few okay, hours. Okay, so really it wasn't strange. like uh, the crater that's erupting in um, the Big Island because I was right up to the lava flow. Yeah, it was so slow. It was like an inch yeah. No, this is pretty time. quick. Got it. And it's the it's actual when it starts flowing it's down like, the volcano. Um, Unless it's a huge amount, it usually goes really slow. And it's yeah. not very exciting. You can walk up to it and you can like yeah, poke yeah, with a stick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is like Don't a touch big it, but yeah. vat, like an endless vat a of lava, a cauldron where it could be hundreds of feet deep of lava. And yeah, it's very scary looking. And the heat and the sound that it makes is kind of terrifying. Okay. Like it makes you feel really small yeah, yeah. and really vulnerable. Like when you go and look into it, you're just like, what are we doing here? Like, is this a good idea? This is kind of scary. And this, <laughs> and the smoke that comes off is is terrifying too, because you can't breathe it. Um, it's very sulfuric, um, and when you breathe it, it if you breathe too much of it in or just any of it, it starts to burn your eyes and it burns your lungs. It changes um, with the any moisture. It touches moisture. It turns into sulfuric acid, which is why it burns your lungs and it burns your eyes. Any moisture on you, it'll it starts to burn. So you're always the gas mask, always around your neck. And at some point, if the wind blows a big chunk of gas at you, the smoke, you'll be gagging and you can't see anything because your eyes start burning. So you can sometimes see, but the you know, thicker it gets, the worse it gets. So that's kind of scary right there. Some volcanoes I've been to, if it rains, it actually, the rain goes through the, the cloud of smoke and it turns into sulfuric acid and it rains acid on you. Oh my God. Yeah. And any carabiner starts to corrode immediately with acid. So stainless steel will rust. Aluminum starts to corrode immediately. Like you can watch the stuff degrade day by day. You can walk out there and be like, oh, the carabiner's looking really rusty now. You know, like how many more, you know, it's interesting. We have pull tested some stuff afterwards to see right. what it's like. But yeah, Urta yeah. Ala, the first volcano I did too, it's in a desert. So it's really dry. Mm -hmm. We didn't see a Got lot it. of erosion. Some they're pitting on my carabiners and stuff. But uh, we pull tested some and they're still fine. So I can still use them. But uh, the first thing we do when we get off the volcano is rinse everything off, <laughs> you know, wash it. Try and get all the acid off as you can. 
Um, but some of the volcanoes that are wet, like it rains, they're just garbage. You can't use anything. So you might have, you know, hundreds of, or maybe depends how much, how big the expedition is, but you'll definitely have every piece of gear is garbage more or less. Um, I kept a pocket knife on my harness from uh-huh. one yeah. volcano and I figured, well, that's not a safety thing, right? So it's, I can still keep, it's all rusted. It's a stainless steel blade. And then I used it to cut a rope once and the blade just broke. <laughs> Oh, wow. Yeah, a big chunk. Like the teeth, the serrated teeth actually just snapped them right off. So the knife was still half there, but the serrated teeth just snapped right off. Like a big piece was gone. So it's kind of like, wow, that's kind of (laughs) scary. And that was only there for two months, or sorry, two weeks in the volcano with that knife. Um, In one of the volcanoes, I was working, I was rigging at the tripod above my head and it was raining. And uh, the rain went down. I had everything pretty tight, but I had my arms up and the rain went down my sleeves. Uh, the acid rained into my armpits and it burned my armpits like really bad. Like it was And so did you actually have like a mark after? Oh yeah, I had work. I, was, I had read for two weeks later. My oh, armpits wow. were still, actually it was probably like two weeks after I got back from the volcano, it was still red. So I was out there for 14 to 16 hours that day in the rain and there's nothing I could do. Yeah. In the volcano, like down multiple, like hundreds of feet deeper into the volcano away from camp when that happened. And it's going to be like 10 hours before I get back to camp. Yeah. So I just had to suck it up and just be like, oh man, my armpits are so sore right now. So you're 300 feet down into So it. we were about that, right where that happened, I was about 600 feet deeper into the volcano than our camp. Oh my God. But our camp is already 900 feet inside the crater of the volcano. We'd get helicoptered into it and get left there. And then we we set up another tension rope system, another 600 feet down into the volcano, even deeper to finally get to the lava. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. Yeah, so you're camping. 1,200 feet, wow. Yeah, so you'll be camping in this volcano for weeks. Camping. Yeah. Oh, in this acid. I don't know if I'd feel so safe. In this acid. Of, and even the, the, so at night, it gets really foggy there. This was this is in Venonatu. Sorry, this is a different volcano. In Venonatu, um, very foggy there. Like, it's like, it's, it's a very humid environment. You're in a, the, the South Pacific Islands. Yeah. So the island could have a beautiful day, but right on top of the island is a cloud that sits there and you just happen to be in it. And it's always, it's like an acid cloud. Yeah. So we had everything in the tent. Like I had stuff in my tent that never got wet, but just that humidity, it's like an acid humidity. Fun. And like stuff in Ziploc bags would start corroding. <laughs> like my USB cords would start turning green. Like I'd start losing connection after like, file it off and rub it with like you know rub it on some something abrasive to get a connection on my to plug in my gopro and stuff wow it was very interesting and like uh we had silver uh stainless steel cutlery up there mm-hmm. it was rusting on day one yeah. just in the air the air was just acid enough it started to rust and by day three you couldn't rub off the rust anymore it was just you're eating with a rusty floor <laughs> like it was just like whatever you know i'm here for two more weeks what are you gonna do like just you try to rub off any flakes of rust and you just eat and like we would set up a, a, like a carabiner on the ground and you'd set up a gopro on a time lapse and you, within a few days you'd see it corrode oh wow. of being in acid rain yeah it was really interesting so every piece of gear is garbage your harness is garbage your yeah, helmet's yeah, garbage. Yeah. i had a, a visor on my ice climbing or my helmet designed for ice climbing yeah and the helmet or the visor just turned to fog and it just started cracking and it was so brittle i left it up i left it on my helmet i left it up as like a rock shield for like rubble falling and uh-huh. i had safety glasses on the whole time it's also really windy in the volcano so it's always blowing dirt in your face so oh, wow. i left the visor on but i got to the point where 
if I, when I moved the visor, the visor just pieces would just break off in my hand. Like it was like, wow. Okay. So that plastic didn't hold up very well, <laughs> but my, my, my safety glasses did. So obviously the plastic they use for the visor was designed for ice climbing and yeah, not yeah. for, for moisture, not for acid. <laughs> so I've, I've since upgraded my visors for acid yeah. proof and I have sulfuric acid now here at their office that we test stuff with before we go to see different nice. fabrics and stuff. And no, for sure for your next, uh, yeah, for the next expeditions. And so that, that first volcano, yep. you rigged, she made her. Yeah. Yeah. So the first volcano, um, Erta Ala in Ethiopia, um, I rigged it all night. Um, and by sun up, you know, we were able to start traversing across and we went, um, we only had 300 foot ropes, so we didn't have, just because it was a kind of a last minute thing of getting the ropes from sponsors and, and, uh, they usually don't manufacture in really long lengths or they, as they manufacture it, they chop it at the same time and they kind of store it chopped because who wants, you know, a thousand feet of fireproof rope. It's so expensive. Most firefighters will carry 80 feet in there as a rescue on their harness in their bag to like get out of a burning building or something, but no one would carry hundreds of feet. Um, so it was difficult for us to get longer than 300. We had a one 300 foot piece or two 300 foot pieces and one that was 150 left over from a different volcano expedition or another heat expedition I did. So um, we traversed, we kind of skirted over a corner of the crater and we were right over, you know, over the lava and over one of these heat vents. And it was, uh, it was pretty cool to do it. And it's the hottest desert, one of the hottest deserts in the world in Ethiopia that we were in. So just, just stand in there, you're hot in the dark at night. So putting on the heat suit and just getting into it, like we were already in danger of overheating already. Mm-hmm. So when we went over the lava, it was, yeah, it was just hot. Pretty intense. <laughs> yeah. So, um, since then I've implemented cooling systems into the heat suits and stuff to help cool us kind of like the astronaut suits. Interesting. Um, and I didn't think we'd need it there because I didn't think it would get hot enough for the lava, but it, the, I didn't take into account that it's already 40 degrees Celsius before you get in the suit. So you're already at your, your body core temperature is already kind of at a max. And then you're getting in the suit going over lava and you just really start to overheat really quickly. You don't really get, we weren't really worried about getting burned. We we're worried about just getting heat exhaustion. Passing oh, totally. out, right? You can only stay in that suit for so long. Yeah. So how much time did you really have to like put on the suit and go? Um, so we... We only put the suit on right when we was time to do it, obviously. And I think as soon as we got it on, we just did it right away. Like we went up to the edge and did it. And Karina was out there for maybe 10 or 15 minutes over the lava. Uh, again, over the, on the traverse, but only maybe five minutes of that was directly over the lava where it was the hottest. Mm-hmm. Um, and then she came back and then I went second. And that was part of the deal I made with her because she couldn't pay me what I wanted to get paid to do it with all the logistics and and then so the deal was she goes first I go second and I keep the heat suits that I designed and built <laughs> so so she has the first and then she has ha- the world first yeah. and then you, you have the men's first I have the men's yeah, first yeah, sure yeah. Yeah. she has the world first I'm just like the guy that went after her right yeah <laughs> you know but, hey. but she does admit that you know she totally admits in the in the doc that you know it was all me like she was just going along for the ride really but she's the one that paid for us she's the one that made it happen right she's the one that got the production company together to do it not me so she gets the world first and we did another world first with a vip client in uh, venonatu with ultimate volcano expeditions and again um the other guide and i was a inside a crater 
of a volcano, there's another crater of another lava pit that no one's ever, only a few people have even seen it with even, and only a few people from the ground. Most people ever see it from a helicopter. Okay. And we, it was a 600, so we're already in, we have to hike like a kilometer inside the crater over some steep terrain to get to this another pit. And it goes down about 600 feet, 200 meters or 200 meter rope just touched the ground. So the guy, other guide and I rappelled in yeah. 200 meters to make sure the rope touched the ground. But we brought extra ropes with us because we thought we may have to like drill and we brought our drills and we may have to drill in and build a, like a multi-pitch point yep. and then drop another section of rope. But it just touched. Um, and then, um, but we didn't touch the ground. We just confirmed ropes are on the ground. We're like 20 feet above the ground, but we didn't touch because she wants the world first. Mm. She wants to be the first one to touch For ground sure. in that yeah. crater. And go walk and be the first one to walk up to the lava. So then we hook on our gas power descenders and and we pull ourselves all the way back up. And then she rigs up with the with their rigger and then they go down together. And she's the first one to land in the ground. She gets the world first kind of oh, thing, wow. right? Yeah. So a lot of the stuff I've done has been for other people's world first, right? Like I'll I'll put it together, I'll make it happen and the expeditions may only cost this much, but then what kind of comfort level do you want, right? Do you want mm-hmm. like a, a yacht, <laughs> like a beautiful yacht with a <laughs> do you want spa on board and a helicopter <laughs> for your trip to Antarctica? Or are you okay with just like a crew, like an in, like an industrial um, kind of like commercial cruiser? So do you plan that out? I've planned out a few to Antarctica, yeah. Oh, wow. And I'm waiting for the person to with the budget <laughs> to do it. So there's a volcano in Antarctica that uh, no one's ever seen with the eye. It's only been seen from satellite and it has a lava lake apparently. So I've planned an expedition. I've planned it. I've priced it out to get there. Now I just need someone that wants to pay to go there. (laughs) (laughs) And there's a few people that are all waiting. There's a few people I've, I've talked to George and George has the same idea. And a few other people. And he's like, well, there's a few other people too that are planning this. So who's, whoever gets the finances together first to do it, will get not only the world first to go to the volcano, but the mountain is unclimbed. What about Nat Geo? Wouldn't they sponsor it? Um, it's, it's a pretty big budget oh. and it's not a guarantee. It's again, you're working from satellite imagery. Just talk to Joe Rogan. So it's pretty cool. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. So there's some cool stuff. And then there's, you know, there's other volcanoes there. There's, uh, another volcano there that's really popular. So yeah, exactly. So there's all these cool ideas, right? So I just wait, you know, if someone comes up to me or contacts us and says, we want to do this, usually they have an idea already of a volcano. And then I just say, well, what if we do this? Or what if we do that? Because I can do this. I can make that for you. Um, You're appealing to everybody's inner adventure, Indiana Jones or whatever. Yeah. (laughs) Especially when it's the the whole thing where um, having sort of a professional along that sort of sets it up, Mm -hmm. right? Because if you want to be the first person to climb El Cap without a rope, well, you know, like Alex Honnold, you've got to be that good of a climber. Exactly. But to, you know, traverse out on a line, you don't have to be an elite level athlete no, to do it. No, not at all. Or to wrap into something, right? Yeah. You know, so it, it's a thing that lets people get, they've got to have the big pocketbook yeah. or, or... They have to have the finances to run the expedition. But, but they don't have to be an expert themselves. Yeah. They just have to have the, uh, they have to have the adventurous spirit to want to do it. Yeah. And then listen to the experts you bring along and do yeah. what they tell you. <laughs> yeah. And like, I'll bring a volcanologist with me because I'm not an expert at volcanoes. I know quite a bit and I've read some books, but I, volcanologist, I, I don't that. have a PhD <laughs> in geology or 
in, in that in that area. So apparently, there's no actual PhD in volcanology. It'll be in some sort of geology. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. If, once you get enough PhDs in certain areas, you can call, and you've had so much experience in volcanoes, you can call yourself a volcanologist, or you'll be you'll be labeled by other people a volcanologist, right? Um, so there's a few different volcanologists I know around the world, and different, and they all have expertise at different volcanoes. So if I'm going to Africa, then okay, this is the volcanologist I would use. If I'm going yeah. to Nicaragua, then this is the volcanologist I would use. And if I'm going to Antarctica, then there's a different volcanologist I would use for that. Ones that have been to those areas. And and they also have um, kind of a little bit of pull with the political. Because again, everything's like, when you're doing volcanoes, it's like the oh, government sure. gives you permission. <laughs> like you have to ask like for government permission. They already have those relationships. Or, yeah, so you kind of have to go with people that have already been there for other reasons. Um, and then but now we want to do this. And then they're like, their eyeballs, you know, you can, the response of the emails are hilarious. They're just like, what? <laughs> you can tell they had no idea you were ever going to say what you wanted to say, like you were going to mention. And uh, so there's a few things that I've, I propose that are on hold because different people are not ready for expeditions of that magnitude at their volcano or whatever, but I'm hoping that things will open up. I'm really hoping that I could, this would be the next like Everest, right? Like Everest is like the amount of people have done Everest and it's actually quite dangerous. And really you have to be good at suffering to do Everest, right? It's, you know, although it's not technically hard, you have to be good at suffering. You You have to suffer through the cold. You have to suffer through the endurance of moving uphill and low oxygen you got to get all the gear together. You got to train in advance physically and mentally, hopefully, mm-hmm. for something like that. Mm-hmm. And you still have to get the expertise together. And it's still very expensive. Um, where some of the expeditions I've planned for volcanoes is we rig it all, we get it all ready for you. You stay at the five star you know, resort, mm-hmm. you know, and then we chopper you in when we're ready. Mm-hmm. And if the weather's bad, you just go back to your resort again, right? So and then you come in for the actual stunt when the weather's good and everything's perfect. Okay, and then we put you in your custom heat suit we built for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, to your superhero style that you like, you know? <laughs> Could you imagine if there was like a superhero logo? No. Well, this is, that's what we've, we've done. We've, we've actually, can we, we've uh, talked to different clients and we're like, well, the, you know, what do you want the suit to look like? You know, we could make it. The suit that I designed for Karina, I purposely made it just a little bit cooler than the regular one because I wanted a lot of room left for other cool suits to come. It was mm-hmm. kind of like I've worked in the TV industry enough to know that the next suit should be cooler than the first one, right? Yeah. So I left it. I just made it enough that it's cool enough that it looks really different than your standard metal worker suit, but with lots of room to play. In and now I can color the suits too. I can color the metal. And at a certain temperature, the color melts off and you get like battle damage on the suit that looks cool. But yeah, so there's all these crazy things that I can do. But again, I haven't been able to put them in the volcanoes yet because, well, one, because of COVID and then two, because of other logistics, either I don't get permission at that volcano or the person that wants another volcano I was planning on, the one in Venonatu, there was actually like almost like an earthquake there. It actually put a crack in the island. And the volcano, the sides of the volcano that are unstable, they all slid down into the crater and buried the lava. So my amazing volcano expedition I had planned, mm-hmm. and I was selling to a few clients that were interested, all of a sudden there's no lava there now. So, oh, so they're like, it's I'm like, well, wow, that's not, that <laughs> no one wants to go to a smoking pit. It's yeah. still smoking, but the, the lava hopefully will come back. Like it's, the rock is starting to melt mm. and starting to smooth out, but maybe another five or 10 years before it's a raging lava pit again. But, uh, 
but anyway, yeah, so just building the suits is fun for me. Like, I love that. <laughs> Get to use the sewing machine again and do fun stuff and, and yeah. fire fabric. And then, and like, yeah, it, that's exciting right there. Building suits that no one's ever built before to do stuff that no one's ever done before is kind of cool. So, and you can have fun with it. Like, I, you can, I did tell some clients, like, do you have, uh, I've had some clients who love like Batman, right? Like, love Oh, Batman. for sure. This like recently had a guy on the on the course and he was like, I was like, dude, you do whatever you want. Have fun, right? If you want to say you're Batman the whole day, go for it, right? Because repelling off the zip line into the middle of the gorge, that's the program we do in Alora, you feel like a superhero. Like you do stuff that you don't see people on TV ever doing. Like I rarely train as I don't think I've ever trained a stuntman to repel off a zip line. But I've always trained them to repel off buildings all the time and run down buildings face first. But to repel off a zip line into the middle of a river is pretty cool. And it feels pretty cool. So everyone feels like a superhero anyway. So then that one guy, yeah, he kept he loved Batman. He admitted it and he the whole day was about Batman. It was awesome. So if he built a lava suit, he might want it to look like Batman. <laughs> like Batman <laughs> versus ears. Superman suit, you know? And we could totally do stuff like that now. So that's pretty cool. So and there's all these different installations that I'm putting into play. My, I kind of had the, the one stunt I was going to do over the volcano in Venonati before it caved in on itself was uh, one where he's ziplining as close to lava as you can to the point that the suit starts like melting or turning, catching fire or something, which would be pretty cool. So he wanted to get as close as possible to the lava, which is great. And then I thought, well, if you don't get, if it, the, the suit never catches fire, we could just light you on fire as you go. <laughs> just a, well, really, just coat it with lighter fluid? Yeah, like, and, you and know, I, it we've done that. Uh, yeah, we've done that for movies before where we actually, have there's you? stunt okay. gel. And George Karunas, we actually lit him on fire in the parking lot out here. I have some amazing photos on my Do phone really? of oh George on fire. And they didn't, they used a little bit in the Nat Geo doc. But they used it as his, he was having a dream and in the dream was on fire. And it, everyone thought it was CGI, but no, he was literally on fire in the parking lot. I had the fire extinguisher. I put him out. And um, the the heat suit can take fire, no problem. You could totally be engulfed in flames in the oh, heat really? suit. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, totally fine. The metal will melt off at about 700 degrees Celsius, but the fiber, the carbon fiber of the suit itself cannot light. It will not ignite, even at 1500 degrees Celsius. It oh, just wow. turns red hot like a, like a coal. Got but it. as soon as it cools down, it goes back to fabric again. So it's really neat. So there'd be, obviously, if we're going to do something that extreme, you would have other layers of insulation inside the suit. So mm-hmm. um, the metal, the reflective metal just gives you that radiant heat, uh, kind of bounces the radiant That's heat off. away from you. Ah, okay. So you don't heat up as much as if you're wearing a black suit or something. Mm. It absorbs heat. Neat. Okay. So yeah. Anyway, this, it's, there's a cool science just in the suits. And so, I love that. Uh, who would you love to do one of these uh, treks with? You know, how, like it's like, who's your favorite actor? Who do you want to have dinner with? Who would I you don't want? know. <laughs> I tried to reach out to Bear Grylls actually, and he was. I did. With who? I tried to reach out to Bear Grylls because you guys don't know who Bear Grylls is. I so he. I don't know anybody. I don't. He's had a pile of. Uh, survival tv shows yeah. like i think he was in the british sas and then he climbed everest and okay yeah you he's know. like a tv he's like an adventure tv adventurer he's probably one of the more famous tv adventurers and but he's an adventurous guy and i think he'd be fun and he has the connections to make it happen and be able to get a budget together to do something like this yeah um i thought like richard branson i've worked with richard branson before oh wow um and i did it what's he like Super nice guy. Yeah. yeah, he's pretty down to earth. So I went to a few of his big parties that he did in Toronto when he launched Virgin Mobiles and stuff. And uh-huh. they're just hilarious. It's just, I can tell you some of any stories. <laughs> but I did a zipline for him 
when he launched Virgin Mobile, he did a big zip line downtown Toronto, okay. like uh, off Olympic Spirit Tower. And he did it himself. He yeah. did it down himself in a, in a Virgin Mobile superhero suit. So we rigged the zip line for him and I took him to the top of the tower and zip lined him down. Yeah. And he was, it was, it was pretty fast and it was really Do you remember smoke that? on his ankles and stuff. Very flashy. Oh, of course. Yeah. yeah but do you remember cool. that TV show he did once, uh, where he had a bunch of apprentices and the, it was, I the, think it was for one of it. He wanted to find the apprentice to work yeah, on his business. The rebel billionaire. I think that was the name of the show. I can't remember, but it was basically he had them do stunts. That you was can't it, work yeah. with me unless. Yeah. And there's that one scene where they had to go between two hot air balloons. Yeah, totally. Do you remember that? Yeah. I so remember. Did they have to go across a ladder? I think so. And it was attached. Now they would have been harnessed in, right? I don't think they were. I don't remember. Ex- I don't remember the everything in detail, but I do remember seeing that stunt. And then they, whoever uh, won got to have tea with him on top. On top, of the and they had to climb up. Yeah. That was crazy. So yeah, that'd be cool to do with Richard. Everything can, he can come in to do the stunt mm-hmm. and be part of it and do the cool stuff, but he doesn't have to be there for the whole rig in. He doesn't have to climb the volcano. We can just get him in with a helicopter and stuff like that. So really? that's my thing now. It's big deal stuff. And uh, there is the longest tightrope walk in the world is coming up. Uh, I was contacted and I've been to scout in a volcano with the guy and he wants to, his name's Bello Knox, and he wants to do the longest tightrope walk in the world. He is really big in the circus world. He has the Guinness Book World Records for the longest time spent on a tightrope, which is eight hours. Oh my God. <laughs> like downtown LA or some, like a, some big city. And he's, so he's got that, but he, well, he wants to beat the world record for the longest one. He wants to do it over an erupting volcano. And, and he wants to be no in a heat suit with no harness, with a gas oh, tank. God. So I'm, I hopefully I'll be designing his heat suit for that and designing the rescue for him and all this stuff. And we talked about it. He'll have, you know, it makes people happy to know he has like a safety attachment point on his harness. So if he falls and he, he's able to clip himself in, if he needed to, he could, but he was like, he won't, <laughs> he's like, he'll just sit on the rope or whatever. But if he needed to, there is a part that will come up out. And then he'll be able to clip into the line if he had to. Mm-hmm. But um, he's pretty sure that he won't. He has to design special shoes for it. Sure he would. And it's pretty cool. So wow. if that happens, it'll be a live event broadcast oh around the world from oh Ethiopia. Yeah, so that'll be over Urtalo Volcano. And he's going to beat the world record as he crosses the caldera before he even gets to the, vol- the crater of lava. And then he has to go through the smoke and over the lava. And then he has to go uphill another, like, I don't know, 500 feet to get out of the crater, out of the the caldera that the crater's in. So he'll, like, almost, he'll probably double the world record, actually. And it'll be over an erupting volcano. So it'll be pretty spectacular to watch, so. That's pretty cool. Yeah, so. I don't think we can top that. (laughs) No. Yeah, so. I'm really hoping it goes. Like, they did make it live. Like, they, it'll be A&E has announced that they're going to do it and they're going to fund it. So I can talk about it now where before I couldn't say anything, but yeah, now yeah, that yeah. they made a public announcement, got it. now I can talk about it. Um, I was kind of really hoping it would be this year, but now I'm kind of glad because of COVID it wasn't this year because yeah. it would have really, that's a huge budget for that thing and that would have really hurt. So, and I think Nick Walenda is trying to do a tightrope walk over Nicaragua volcano. At first, we were kind of upset when we heard that it was like a race to do the volcano tightrope walk. But in the end, it's like, you know what? It's probably better if Walenda does it first and does a cool one and he gets his press out of it. And then Bello does the biggest in the heat suit and it'll be awesome if if it goes. So the thing is, uh, Urta Ala, the lava is always changing. So we have to kind of, 
that's a tricky one to predict where the lava is going to be and what year to do it. And, and like, I just got some new satellite images and the lava has actually moved less than the small crater. It's moved to the bigger crater, which used to be dormant. Now almost a lot of it is there. So it's like, okay, well, that's cool. That's actually a really good visual effect too. But mm-hmm. it, that's where my expertise comes in. I say, you should be good at winging it. Like, I'm just like, give me the gear and send me and I'll make it happen. You know, like I don't, it doesn't matter what crater it's on. But it's it's pretty cool. It's what a lifestyle. Cool expedition. So again, this is not normal every day for me. I've only done a few things here and there, but I'm hoping that more of these things go. Like I'd love the Antarctica to go. That's yeah. on my list for this month to contact George and nail down some details, maybe if we can somehow. And uh, there's actually a uh, there's a TV show Five One On Films released something. They're trying to pitch a TV show with me as the host of it volcano tv show no way. behind the scenes of prepping it'll be like a MythBusters meets volcano so like testing the heat suits and blowing stuff up and so we'll see they're trying to get some traction on a production company that wants to run with it so we'll see it may go may not but yeah, yeah, it's yeah. kind of again it's like all these is kind of it's exciting yeah. to have on the back burner so because we're all about for people to live adventurous, passionate lives. And it sounds like that's what you've been doing since as a kid to now. Yeah, I've been very fortunate. I just felt it just happened for me. Yeah. I almost went into, in school, I thought I was kind of leaning toward going to architecture because I really like drawing, but I also like the engineering side of it. And I thought architecture is kind of a good way to put both together, mm-hmm. design and build kind of thing. Yeah. And But then I realized that as I went long, further year after year in different architecture programs, I realized that I'm just going to be at a desk all the time. Yeah. And I don't get, in the first few years, they really entice you because you get to design whatever you want. Like design, like I did mechanical drafting, like design your own car. Like, oh, this is great, right? You're, <laughs> you know, you're designing your, the favorite car you think the most cool car is. Yeah. And then you, oh, design your own house. You're like, oh yeah, this is the coolest thing. And then the next year after that, it's like, here's, here's your project. Build this apartment building. It needs this many floors. It has to have this many rooms and the square footage. And it's just like, oh, this is what the job's really going to be like. Just following rules and yeah. going through guidebook or like, you know, code books on codes. And I was like, oh, it's actually pretty boring. So as much as I liked the idea of it, I decided I'd go into outdoor adventure instead. And, uh, and when I did a mountaineering course out west, one of the guides told me, because I wanted to go to Canloops, um, outdoor program there mm-hmm. and he worked at the program he was the climbing guys and he told me you know what save your money it's pretty expensive and it's like four years of your life or whatever he's like save your money and just do programs where you want to excel because if you do an outdoor program with cantaloupes and cantaloupes or most of the outdoor programs you're you're covering a wide base on a whole bunch of different areas and areas you may not want to do like you'll cover canoeing and kayaking and scuba diving and Everything with outdoor venture, like snow stuff and skiing and cross country skiing and skate skiing and all this stuff. And you made that half of that may not interest you, but you're paying for it and you're mm-hmm. spending time doing it mm-hmm. and writing exams on it and stuff. Where he was like, just if you want to be into climbing and ropes, just take courses in there. Take rock, take rock climbing courses, take you know, high angle rescue courses, um, take confined space rescue, uh, industrial rescue, or just industrial rope work, like um, working at heights just excel in that area and that's what I decided to do I kind of just focused in one area and I went there and uh the Guelph Grotto a climbing gym in Guelph um they wanted to start an outdoor rock climbing program 
about 20 years ago, and they hired me um, to start up a rock climbing program for his gym. And in the end, he didn't want to do it because it was too expensive. The insurance and just, it was just going to cost more than he thought, and he wasn't going to do it. And I was like, that was going to be my summer job, right? <laughs> like, I kind of like put some travel plans, like I had a trip plan and I canceled it all. So um, that's how I started out One Axe Pursuits. I decided to start the company that I was going to run for him and do it on my own. So where did the name come from? That was my nickname, One Axe. That was a nickname that I got on a mountaineering course out west. I had done a lot of ice climbing before I went and going, this is my first trip to the Rocky Mountains, right? So I envisioned like, this is like a multi-day course. It's like on like day seven on the course, we're going ice climbing. So I envisioned like, oh, this is going to be like a thousand foot ice climb on the side of a mountain, like multi-pitch lead or like I'll be second in probably because I won't hit this lead, but it'll be awesome. And then when we got there and it was day seven or whatever on the course and they started okay, we're ice climbing today. We're just going to lower you down the side of this glacier into the Bergschrund. It's like a 200-foot climb maybe. And then you guys climb out. And I was like, what? Like, I thought you guys went like, I thought you guys went like real ice climbing. Like, this is like, I just get to climb on the side of a glacier? Are you kidding me? Because I had done a lot of like pretty hard climbing on ice at that point. Um, so I was kind of like, Oh, okay. But I knew everything. I just hadn't been to the mountains yet. So it was kind of cool because the guy had recognized I knew a lot of stuff. So he kind of gave, I was the youngest person there, but I had my own. I was like the leader of one of the rope teams. So like he led one rope team and I led the other one, which was kind of cool. But when it came time to go down the glacier to lower me down, we had just two mountaineer ice axes. They weren't technical tools and they just had like tubular web and leashes on mm. them. And right before I went down and the leashes were kind of like, you know, winging it. So they're kind of sloppy. So he wanted to see one of the ice axes. So I thought, oh, he's just going to tidy the leash up or shorten it a bit for me or something. So I passed him the ice axe and then he took it and he stuck it in the snow behind him. And then he's like, all right, have fun. And he started lowering me down. And I only had the one ice axe. And I was like, what? Oh, okay. This is more challenging now. Okay. This would make, make it more fun. Mm -hmm. So yeah, he lowered me down, you know, like uh, down this 60 meters or whatever down the side of the glacier and then i climbed all the way up with only a little one ice axe everyone there because you can see from another angle you can watch the people climb and everyone called me one axe after that so but uh yeah so that was pretty cool so that was my nickname one axe and literally no one it was hilarious because no one on the course called me by name after that the rest of the day it was always one axe like hey one axe and so when i came back to ontario I just put one axe on my helmet with some decals or whatever. And then if I wrote it name on my equipment, instead of writing in my last name, like I used to do in like army cadets, I would just wrote one axe on my stuff. So uh, when I started the company, I had all these other ideas of names that kind of suited the business better, maybe like Alpine this or climb this or yeah. vertical, whatever. But all this, it seemed like all the names I wanted were taken. We decided one axe pursuits because it gave us a little bit of leeway with what we did, because I actually started running some canoe adventures and backpacking adventures in the first couple of years. Um, did a little bit more different adventures in general, but then we decided just to focus. Like It wasn't until the next year right away we knew we really want to focus on rope stuff. Yeah, so... Yeah, one, one of the nice things, too, for people, like if you've got any interest in whether it's going down to the Dax or the Whites or out west of the Rockies... Um, Fred's one of the only, uh, climbing guides in Ontario that can teach you mountain stuff without having mountains. 
yeah, we run a we run a mountaineering course right here in Alora, so it's pretty interesting. And I, I've even so we get a lot of people that are going on a guided trip um, to like the Himalayas, or they're going to and An- An- Aga Congo or somewhere in South America, or even in somewhere in China. And they need to have, they can't go totally green. They have to have basic rope knowledge of roping up, long rope, short rope, self-arrest, crevasse rescue. And uh, we have a course that allows us to teach that, even though we're not on a mountain. And give the, and we all call the company. Sometimes we act, the company will call us and I'll tell them what they're learning. They're like, sure, it sounds great. Yeah. And then they, they're, so I'll teach them. I've even trained, taught guys in sand how to do crevasse rescue and well crevasse rescue we do inside the building we have a, a trap door that's 20 feet down we have a mannequin that we can rescue and then we switch to humans once we practice on the mannequin and so we all the pulley systems we do indoors and then the self-arrest and uh, the team arrest we can do usually we do in the snow obviously but if there's no snow we can make it happen on sand too so and because i've I've literally been pulled into crevasses. I've fallen in crevasses. I kind of know what to expect, and I know what it feels like to get dragged towards a crevasse, so I know how to simulate that for people. And sand works just fine, other than you get really dirty, and sand's everywhere. But it snows obviously better. It's slipperier, but you can learn the technique, and, mm. you, and you can roll and have the big back. So we'll force people to do it with their backpack on, like a 70-pound backpack. It doesn't have to be quite 70 pounds, but it's got to be big because mm. when you get pulled towards a crevasse and you have a big backpack on and you're wearing the crampons and all your stuff on, it doesn't feel the same as when you're sliding on your bum on the hill practicing oh, self-arrest. No. It yeah. feels so different and it takes you so long to maneuver your body into the position to actually stop someone. So usually when we first pull someone, uh, they, they, they kind of die <laughs> or they get really close to dying. Like we'll draw a line in the sand, right? And, or in, in the snow. And it's like, if I, if we can pull you past this point, you might be the next one in the hole. Right. And of course they, they have to stop the team by themselves. So it's, it's kind of normally you'd be on a rope team with hopefully you'd be two people out of the carass. Normally beginners would be on a three man rope team or a bigger rope team. You wouldn't just wow. have two guys, but, and there is ways to do two guys, but you should be kind of more experienced at that point. So they'll have to stop the whole rope team by themselves. And it's kind of fun. And people realize, and you, you know, we give them knee pads cause we like rip them right off their feet and drag. We don't, I was like, this is not, a, this is like the real deal, right? Like you're training for like a life and death scenario here. So we can't, you know, sugarcoat it, you know, we're going to rip you off your feet and start dragging you and you have to stop us before we pull you across this line. You know, I just think fun. back when we were in, um, Utah in the Escalante mm-hmm. and we were backpacking and we were coming back and so we were like beelining it back to the curve. Of course, there's these obstacles of canyons and that you're like, oh, turn back. <laughs> and I'm like, why? He's like, there was like a, a pit of sand. It was just, oh no, <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, and I'm afraid of heights. Okay. And we had no ropes. I think we should have had webbing with us <laughs> on this trip. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't care. It's an adventure. But, yeah, yeah. but did but you my, die? fuck off <laughs> it's like that meme right that girl i thought we're going for a hike an easy hike yeah but did you die no but, yeah. no but and thank god we didn't go down that fool's canyon which would have been 13 kilometers beeline yet you know to the car which would not have been in june well no no that would have been 13 kilometers once we left the canyon that had no water in it well, like exactly. It, there no was still water. there was still like 15 <laughs> kilometers up the canyon. Then we'd have to cross the mesa. Yeah, that would have been stupid. So, well, that's why we didn't do it. Once. No, 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 no. We were supposed to do it. <laughs> yeah, but so we went a different route, and we were only three kilometers. Three kilometers. Yeah. 
hike. We got up out of the canyon. We camped quite a ways. And then we still had to do another two hours to do the last 2K. Anyway, we didn't know how to get there, right? Which was fun because it was only 2K. But he's like, oh, let's just go this way. I'm like, no, 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 no. Let's go up a hill. (laughs) Let's survey. Because once you go in, you don't know if you're getting out. Yeah, there was a couple of like little side canyons we went in. And you just follow it. And it's making its way down. That's what we want. Yeah. But then it just dead ends with like if there'd been water because it eroded it's in the sandstone and we're standing on top of what would it be a hundred foot high waterfall and it's like nope i guess we turn around and make our way back up (laughs) so for anybody who uh you want to learn to climb you want to go caving you want to learn to ice climb um like our buddy david lee like uh he was actually a client of yours okay um before he went and did mount rainier last summer oh excellent i did mount rainier and mount hood yeah yeah and, you know, he posted pictures of like learning to learning yeah. to ascend a line, okay. you know, like out of a, a crevasse or something or yeah, yeah. Um, ascending. Yeah. Just, yeah, we do depending on the mountain depends what we teach. So like for him, like depending on what climb he was going to do, a lot of people tell me what mountains they are going to do. And then I'll, yeah, I'll cater the course to that mountain. Like if you're going to Himalayas, you might need to know fixed ropes. And yeah. you may have to repel down like multi-pitch fixed ropes that are on like 45 like angled ice. Some people may just want you know, standard mountaineering techniques, no fixed ropes, and but know how to ascend out a crevasse, which mm-hmm. I think was what he was learning. Yeah, because you were doing that in the bell tower. Yeah, in the bell tower. Yeah, so yeah, it's great. I love teaching that course. And sometimes we'll have people like doing the ladders. We'll have the ladder set up indoors, like oh practicing crevasse, crossing crevasses with the crampons on, and we'll do that inside the building. That's a good. The nice idea. thing with the big building is we can do some of the course outside. And then whenever it's cold, we come inside and we finish the course inside and when it's warm. And it's great. Yeah. So basically, we, we sort of preach this to everybody. If you want to learn to climb, obviously, if you can find a mentor, that's great. But there's way more new climbers than there are mentors. But the great thing is there's more guides out than there's ever been before. You know, so contact like Fred and his team because you've got a pile of guides working for you. Yeah, we have quite a few instructors that work with us. Um. And then if you just want to do sort of those fun days, like whether it's because we didn't even get in talking, doing like things like your amazing race you do, your corporate. <laughs> yeah, if you work for a corporation or a team that has uh, quite a few people and you have a budget for doing fun events, we have you can have your company pay for you to do some cool stuff. So, Oh, yeah. Yeah, we have some pretty cool programs on our one Axe team building page that are pretty neat to watch. Yeah, and we'll put, we'll put links to all of that in the show notes. Yeah. Uh, you know, along with any of the relevant videos, like we'll dig around and find some video from like the, uh, uh, the documentary. So you can see, you know, how crazy this stuff over volcanoes really is. Um, and, uh, yeah, like I, like I said, it's like, if you want to learn to climb, like contact Fred and basically, uh, get out with professionals and learn how to do it safely because climbing is like a fun, thrilling sport. Um, and it, it has some inherent dangers of its own. So you don't need to add to that by doing all the dumb shit we all did when we were kids. Because, um, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Uh, as soon as I could find courses, I took them immediately. Like, there was no question. Price yeah. wasn't an option because I knew I wasn't doing stuff very safely. Yeah. And there's like, a better way to do it. And yeah, as soon as I took those courses, I had total confidence. And I, my climbing level could increase because I wasn't second guessing anymore. And we could just push hard, right? Yeah. And that that's sort of what it, what it comes down to is like, um, we want to have an adventure, but we want to go home. 
right? So, you know, learn from the professionals. Uh, if you want to do like a volcano traverse, um, obviously now you know who to talk to because, you you know, most people would have no clue. <laughs> um, and then, you know, uh, maybe, you know, come winter, we'll talk to you again specifically about ice climbing and how people can get into that because, uh, you know, it's such a fun sport. Um, and again, most people don't know what the gateway is to get into it. Yeah. Um, but the fact that, you know, you're, you're a half an hour away for us, uh, maybe it's an, is it an hour and a half to Toronto? Yeah. Nowadays it's about 90 minutes or so yeah. to Toronto. So come ice climbing. And, uh, because he makes his own ice. Um, guaranteed you, ice. Yeah. We can guarantee you the ice. Yeah. You know, so Fred, thanks for having us over. Um, you know, hopefully as COVID gradually disappears, um, we'll be hearing about some more adventures coming your way. Yeah. Yeah, sounds good. So until next time. I'm Catherine. I'm Winston. I'm Frederick. Work hard. Go ahead. Work hard. (laughs) Play dirty. Yeah. (laughs) Have fun. Yeah. And and this is this is I'm just gonna just officially Uh, for the for the uh, listeners um, because whether this will make it in because Catherine edits these. uh, This is the second episode we've recorded in two days or three days that she's screwed up our (laughs) outro. (laughs) Just just for the record. Just to remind you.